So I, I felt God put on my heart to speak particularly just on Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. I was going to read it from 1 to 10, but time's slipping by. So just verse 10 is what I want to speak about. For we are his workmanship. Uh, one translation, I think it's the Jerusalem Bible, calls it his work of art. Uh, the Greek word is the word we get our word and poem from. We're his poetry. We're his poem. He's writing us. He's doing it. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. At the beginning of the chapter, it says, we were walking in the, our blindness. We were walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. That's where we were walking. Now we're to walk in works that God's prepared beforehand. What a privilege for us to walk in. I want to speak about our call, the, 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 the charisma and the character of the man and woman of God. Father, we thank you so much for the joy of fellowship. We thank you for your purpose, catching us up, Lord. We're so grateful that you breathed life into us when we were so dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, called us your workmanship, Father. Now, Holy Spirit, would you please just bless our thoughts, come upon us, teach us, inspire and shape us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, leadership starts with God's call. God has to call us out from the mess we were in. He quickens us. He does the thing. He makes us his own. It says in Hebrews, no one takes this role to himself. It's something God does. God initiates, begins to work in our hearts. Having saved us, he begins to impress upon us a desire to serve him. We find a fascination with truth. We find a love for the saints. We want to feed the flock of God. We want to care for them. And we find the grace of God is upon us to become leaders. We discern it in different ways, but what the Bible calls it is the call of God. And the call of God goes back into eternity that he planned for us in love. He purposes for us. And it's just a huge, huge privilege to know that God has called us. It's always been that way. God called Abram. There's no indication Abram was looking for God. God broke in on his life. God called him. And God called Isaac. God called Jacob particularly and chose him before either of the twins were born. Before time, God called, God planned. And it's a terrific strength for us as we press on in our walk with God to know that he took the initiative. And we know times and seasons of setback and difficulty, disappointments, discouragements, even with ourselves. But to know that God initiated this whole thing. He called us. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you. And to derive huge strength from this reality that God has called us. He took that initiative. He placed his hand upon us. And, and you know, Jeremiah is told, when Jeremiah says, look, not me, I'm too young. I, I can't do this. And God says to him, look, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I had my hand upon you, or even, even the womb I was going to form you in. Sometimes we think, was I formed in the right womb? Was I in the right place? This, my background seems to be against me. 
my setting, my circumstances. No, no, God knew which womb to form you in. Before I formed you in the womb, I had my eye upon you. I, I chose you. And the sense of the miracle of God's kindness in calling us, the sense of being his delight is just a huge, huge privilege. He calls us. He begins the whole thing. We are his choice. I love what it says in, in Corinthians, which is it's hilarious, really. It says, consider your calling, brothers. You know, not many of you were incredibly impressive. Consider your calling that there were not many wise. You know, if you've got a degree and you're here tonight, you're very lucky, really. Not many wise get in. If you're highly qualified, hey, you're among the few. Well done. God doesn't really look for many who are sharp and smart and bright. There are not many wise, not many mighty. We'd like to, if only if we could get a famous sports personality converted, someone who's got impact and influence, wouldn't it be so wonderful? Well, yeah, but God doesn't choose many mighty. He doesn't choose many noble. It'd be nice to get somebody noble, someone from the royal family. We're always pleased when the queen says something good, but nobody else much says much good. But uh, not many noble, it says quite plainly. God has chosen the foolish things. Now you can look around and see. God has chosen <laughs> the foolish things. God has chosen to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong. Sometimes we feel our weakness. If you've been in leadership for any length of time, it's a good place. Being a leader is a huge place to learn to get to know God. There are more pressures on a leader than on the average believer. You're more cast upon God than the average leader, I believe, because we carry more responsibility. We need God so much. And it's a great place to get to know God. I think you get to know God more as a leader because you need him so much. And so we're thrown upon him and uh, we're called to know him. We're called, it says, he chooses the foolish things to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things to shame the things that are strong. He chooses the base things of the world. And even says this, he chooses the things and the despised and the things that are not. Well, you don't get much lower than not. God chooses the things that are not. I always think of how um, Samuel went to the home of Jesse. And you know, Saul having failed and Samuel somewhat broken hearted about how this magnificent figure, this Saul, this guy was head and shoulders above others. It looked so magnificent at the beginning, looked so full of promise and, 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 and failed. And Samuel was broken hearted really. And God had to say to him, how long are you going to be sad about this? And so he goes to Jesse's home, directed by God, and goes straight to the guy who's like Saul, goes to the strong number one, and, and, and he's about to pray for him, as it were, or anoint him. And God says, no, no, he's not the one. And he goes right down the list, right down the seven. And we all know seven's the kind of the perfect number. And there's, there's it's none of them. I mean, I thought you said I was supposed to come here. I thought you said one of these was the chosen one. Is there another one? And Jesse says, yeah, there's one looking after the sheep. Doesn't even name him. Doesn't even name his own son. Imagine having the national prophet come to your home to see your sons. And David doesn't even get invited. It's like he doesn't exist. It's like he's not. 
And God shows us the one who's not. Go and get this one. He says, oh, there's one looking after the sheep. Jesse doesn't say there's David. He goes to look for the one looking after the sheep. And God chooses the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. And very shortly, Mr. Goliath is going to learn about that. He's going to bring to naught this mighty giant through this guy who is not. The wonder of God's call, beloved. God's call changes things. God's call means God's behind you. God's call means he's committed to you. His, his hand is upon you. And for us to know that as we take leadership responsibilities in one way or another, that sense, no, God has done this thing. It may be you feel, well, someone co-opted me, someone helped, asked me to, to help. But, you know, Timothy, Paul said to the elders of the church, I'd like Timothy. Yeah, that's the way it happened. He initiated it. He, he drew Timothy in, but he's a cool man. And Paul says to him, don't forget the gift of God that's on you. So to know the call of God, we're his workmanship because he initiated it. He put his hand upon us. He interrupted. And from the Jeremiah passage, and Paul uses similar language, you know, before I was formed in the womb, he knew me. He called. So wonderful to think. Now God started this thing. We're his workmanship because he started the work. He put his hand upon us. He decided to use us. And that call means everything. It starts the whole ball rolling. God calls us into his service. He calls us to know him. Called into fellowship with his son. That's one of our primary callings. Before we're called to serve others, before we're called to preach to others, we're called into fellowship with his son. And Paul says that I might know him. It's knowing him that will qualify you more and more to serve his people. Making that your chief desire, your chief preoccupation, to know him better. And, and you'll never get bored if you make that your goal, to know him better. I, I'm just working through Revelation myself this morning. When I just had a reading from Revelation. I, I've, been, I've been out in the, in the beautiful country, South Africa. I don't know how you cope with living here. It's so beautiful. And looking at the mountains and just reading in those early chapters in Revelation, the God of glory, this majestic God. And it says John was in the spirit in the Lord's day. And suddenly there's a door open in heaven and he saw a throne. You think, wow, this is the God we serve. These mountains that God has made, the God, the God who created all things. We're called to know him before we're called to serve him. Let's make sure we get that the right way around. Keep on getting to know him. Keep on getting preoccupied. Get a growing appetite to know him. I read a book last year called The Crucifixion, or just called Crucifixion. I thought, wow. I'm not young anymore, but I thought, oh, the things I learned last year. Just I found my heart leaping for joy, overwhelmed, just looking again at the cross. I read John Stott's The Cross of Christ decades ago, but to read another book about the cross that just absolutely captivated me, I feel I'm getting to know him more. You still getting to know him? I've got that down, know about Jesus. No, we're always, the incarnation is breathtaking, the wonder. Great is the mystery. God was manifest in the flesh. It's huge, it's amazing. And so let's just know, I've been called, I've been called to an eternal preoccupation with God that I might know him and represent him well 
and be caught up into the love between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. No, I'm delighted in. No, I can take part. So let's not just become workers. Let's not just become Christian workers, elders. Let's say, no, I'm called to know God. I'm his workmanship. He wants to work on me. He wants to know me. He wants me to know him. He wants me to ever increasingly know him. So this is our calling. Let's not miss it. Let's not settle for something less than that. Let's continually get to know God, knowing him and knowing, yeah, no, he's called me. You know, the sad thing about Moses, you may recall, Moses was mighty in word and deed. He was in the palace. He was motivated. He saw his, his brothers being ill-treated. It says in Hebrews, by faith, he chose rather to be identified with the despised people than to be seen as the son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter. All that prestige, all that power. In his heart, he seemed to be well motivated. I want to be identified with them. That was courageous. He could have stayed in the palace. He could have said, well, from the palace, I'll change their conditions. I'll, I'll, I'll just be a young prince. I won't let on that I'm a Hebrew. From within, I'll change their circumstances. That would be an easy way. But he said, no, no, by faith, it says in Hebrews, he, has, he identified with them. But he still ran ahead of God. He ran ahead. And he went out. And, and he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. And he went out and killed him. Because, well, he was mighty in word and deed. That's what it says of him. He was mighty in word and deed. He's, he's a powerful young prince. He'd led an army of, Israel, of Egypt against the Ethiopians at Memphis. He'd won a great victory, so Josephus tells us. He's a powerful prince. Well, we're going to sort They'll kill the guy. Kill the Egyptian. And the next day he goes out to knock two Hebrew heads together. Why are you fighting your brothers? And they turn on him and say, who made you a ruler over us? And it says in Stephen's sermon, supposing they would understand God had sent him. But they did not understand. Well, actually, God had not sent him. He was running ahead of God. You know, you can have a desire to serve God, but you mustn't run ahead. We've got to wait for that call. He was actually, God had protected him as a baby. God had looked after him supernaturally to be raised in the house of Pharaoh. God's hand was on him, but he had not yet called him. So he was ahead of God. The call is so important. God's initiative is so important. So he's running ahead of God. I'll sort this thing out. Of course, nothing happens. It's a disaster. Who made you? And it says, looking this way and that. He ran for it. That's one of the marks of someone not called, looking this way and that. <laughs> Wondering, what, 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 am I, what am I doing? What am I doing? And he runs for his life. Runs for his life. And then it's like, it's like I'll serve you, Lord. I remember I went forward as a young backslider at a missionary call in the church that I was going to. The Baptist church used to have a missionary conference every year. I was very backslidden, 18-year-old. And a great preacher called Stephen Olford was preaching. And uh, he's a terrific preacher. And uh, he said, who will go to the mission field at this mission conference? And we all stood there trembling. And he made an appeal. And a lot of ladies went forward, girls went forward. He said, where are the men? And I thought, oh, I'm a man. And, uh, <laughs> and I stood there and I thought, well, maybe God needs a young man. This is all pretty old-fashioned here. And knowing nothing, knowing nothing, I went forward. 
You know, I'll, and we sang this song that really appeals to the flesh. And the lines were, just as I am, young, strong, and free, <laughs> to be the best that I can be. I remember we sang that. And I thought, you know, yeah, just as I am, young, strong, and free, to be the best that I can be. This song really appealed to my flesh. And it's like Moses said, here I am, young, strong, and free. And God said to him, thank you, Moses. See you in 40 years. He's in, the, he's in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years wandering around looking after a few sheep. And then God called him. And then he said, I can't speak. I can't speak. Send somebody else. That sense, I can't do it. I believe God was looking for that in him, actually. Not that, Paul says later, not that we are sufficient of these things, for these things. Our sufficiency is from God who makes us sufficient. Some of us know that from the beginning. Before we get called, we think, I can't do this. Some of us find that out later. Some of us are very skilled and gifted. Maybe we are school teachers or businessmen, and we know we could do whatever. And we think, oh, serve God. And then you hit the wall. Sometimes you hit a problem. You say, oh, God, I can't do this. And I feel it's like God saying, ah, now you understand. <laughs> no, you can't do that. Paul says this, who is, who is sufficient for these things? Because it's so demanding. But we're called by God. And Paul hits the wall in that sense. Who is sufficient for these things? Then he makes that wonderful answer, not that we're sufficient of ourselves. Then the even more wonderful answer, but our sufficiency is from God who makes us sufficient. Hallelujah. We are his workmanship. His call does make us sufficient. If it's his call, he'll hold us. If it's his call, he'll make us. So that's where it begins, where his workmanship starts with his call. And then, it, then it continues with his charisma, with his gifting. There has to be a gifting. Now we notice that many of the attributes of leaders are to do with character, which we'll come to in a moment. But there has to be a gifting. There has to be a, a work of the Spirit Moses has asked, what's that in your hand? Well, it's a stick. Hold it out. Wow. It's a snake. Now it's a stick. Now, somehow there's going to be a remarkable demonstration that when you hold this stick up, this staff of God, it's your stick, it becomes the staff of God. It kind of transitions into something that God owns. When he holds it over the Red Sea, the Red Sea has to go. The Red Sea has to go. And then you get these wonderful psalms. What ails you, O sea, that you have to flee? It's the stick of Moses. No, it's the gift of God that's on him. It's a gift. It's more than us. There's a gift that God gives that transcends us, that God owns us. God, God's spirit upon us adds a dimension that's not natural to us. The call, then the gifting, the charisma of God, something other than what we could produce from our education, our background. It's, that's not relevant to it. It's, it's from God, the charisma of God. And, and Moses has this staff that represents something of that. Hold up the staff. Things happen when he does. Aaron is challenged at one time. They say, who do you think you are, Aaron? You know, who, what makes you so special? God says, hold back. And you get this kind of fury from God. 
What are you doing? He's my chosen. So put, put the staff in the, in, the, in the temple. Put the staff in the, in the tabernacle. Put, and put several staffs. And what happens? Aaron's staff budded. It's like, that's where my hand is. That's my gifting. And when you're called, there's a gifting. There's a gifting that comes from God. There's a, a charisma, an ability that enables you. And it's a gift. We find in the Old Testament men like Gideon, who, when we first meet him, is a scared guy. He's hiding in a cave. He, he's trying to, to, to deal with the wheat and the chaff. You have to do that where there's a breeze. You have to have the breeze. There's no breeze in a cave. He's hiding away, scared of the Midianites. God calls him. I love it, don't you? Gideon, go in the strength of yours. What strength of mine? Go in the strength of yours, you mighty warrior. Me? Who's he talking to? You think, mighty warrior? Somebody else in the cave? No, you. You mighty warrior. Go in the strength of yours. Have I not called you? And he clothes him with charisma and goes and leads 300 against tens of thousands. Tremendous warrior. God did it. The Spirit came upon him. The Spirit came upon the judges. The Spirit came upon Samson. Power of God, other than him. Other than him. It's a power outside. It's a gift of God. It's not something we earn. It's a gift of God. Something other than ourselves. I think we often miss that. It's somehow we think of it's personality. No, there's a gift other than ourselves. Something, a dimension that God has added. He does it. He adds a dimension. He adds a power. And, uh, and without that, we, we can't, we, we're not a, a, a truly biblically charismatic. The word charismatic means all sorts of things these days. But from a Bible perspective, it means anointed by God. Anointed by God. We need to see the anointing of God upon leadership. If we move away from the anointing of God from leadership, you'll learn all kinds of training techniques and management skills. We're looking for something other than that. We're looking for something that's come down out of heaven. Power of God upon us. The Holy Spirit coming, divine gifting and ability. Of course, it says in the Romans 12, we have gifts that differ from one another. Now, we should all use them as good stewards of God's varied gifting, it says in 1 Peter 4. We, have divert, we all have giftings in this charismatic community. We have giftings, and the giftings vary. They're diverse, all sorts of giftings. And the gifting shows you your sphere of ministry. And so, you know, it says in Ephesians 4, he ascended on high, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. These are all different giftings. There are many other gifts as well. But just to stay there for a moment in Ephesians 4, this is the thing that was lacking before we kind of discovered the life of the Spirit afresh. So often, you know, the church leader was called a pastor. He was meant to be kind of prophetic as well. And he's meant to see people saved. He has to be the whole lot. And then we think, hey, wait a minute. It says here some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, and they're diverse giftings. That's why we need teams. That's why we need multiplied ministries. And it isn't like you all go to Bible college, take the exam, and if you get over 90%, you're an apostle. 
Uh, over 80% your prophets, evangelists 70%, and the rest are pastors and teachers. You know. <laughs> it's not like that. It's a gift of God. Very diverse gifting of God. And the evangelist has a flair to reap. Some, some are one-to-one evangelists. I was in a church where I met the men of the church, a circle of guys, and I said, how did you become a Christian? How did you become? And several of them said, oh, he led me to Christ at work. He did, the guy over there. And there were about three or four of them in the room that said, oh, he led me to Christ. And later, they, the, 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 the church called him out to be full-time. He led no more to Christ. <laughs> he was not very skilled on a platform. In the workplace, he was brilliant. He kept on leading people to Christ. There are diverse giftings. Billy Graham says this. He said, when I say I want you to get up out of your chair, I feel the power of God upon me. It's just amazing. That public gift. But that private gift of one by one, leading them to Christ. What a beautiful gift. Some are gifted. Diverse, diverse giftings. Evangelists, prophets. Even in the Old Testament, prophets are different. So you get Zechariah, and he's prophesying, you know, he's seeing extraordinary things. You see, I see horses in the sky. You do? Yeah, I see, you know, he sees extraordinary, amazing things Zechariah sees. Then you say, oh, that's what a prophet does. Then you see Haggai. He says, what are you building your house for? Build the house of God. He's kind of in-your-face prophet. Nathan the prophet. What are you doing, David? He's kind of, some prophets see amazing things. Some prophets just know, what are you up to? Well, that's different. Yeah, I know, it's a prophet. Diverse, very diverse. And into the New Testament, why shouldn't it be diverse prophets? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And the gifting gives you your kind of sphere of influence. It's the gift that does that. So if you're a pastor teacher, you'll find that people come to you. It's one of the ways that elders will become recognised in the local church. Because you don't kind of come with it stamped on your forehead. You know, maybe you've been a small group leader, a life group leader, and you just see people just come to you. They keep asking you. They keep looking to you. They keep keeping... What, the ha- what happens is this. They feel this, I hear God through him. Well, whenever I, I when, maybe public, when he speaks publicly, I hear God through him. Or maybe one-to-one counsel, I always go to him, I just feel I hear God. And the gift opens the door. The gift releases the sphere. Some of it's apostolic, some of it's prophetic, because, wow, when this guy speaks, he tells us mysteries we hadn't seen, things we didn't know. And the pastor feeds the flock of God, and the sheep feel so safe. They feel so fed. They feel so nourished. They feel cared for. That gift, that gift. It's not an appointment. We're not forming a committee. We're acknowledging gifting. And so God calls and God equips with gifting. He gives gifts to people. He releases ministries. They said to David in 2 Samuel 5, even before you were king, when Saul was our king, you led us in and out. His gift to lead them in and out was already manifest before they made him king. Before he was anointed to be king, his gift to lead them into battle and out was manifest. 
And there are people here who maybe you've not even been asked to be an elder yet. People haven't had hands laid on you. But, but people would say, he got me through. He led me out. I was in all kinds of a mess. He led me out. And I didn't understand, but he led me in. There's a gift that leads people through. And they recognize the gift. They recognize it. It's nothing to do with having a degree in the divinity. Well, praise God for any encouragement. Once you are gifted, once you're called, yeah, you can be improved by training, by studying. Yeah, of course. But you don't gift, get the gift from studying. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. We don't despise studying and improving, but we know now God's done it. We're the, we're the people of God. We're his workmanship. That's what it says. We are his workmanship, created in Christ for works he prepared beforehand. What a privilege for us to do. God prepared beforehand. He knew about them before he called you. So we're his workmanship. He calls us, he gifts us. And then the third thing I want to talk about is character. We're his workmanship. He's working on your character and mine at the same time. He's working on our character. Sometimes we're preoccupied with the development of our gift and he's more working on the development of our character. You know, it says we are, we're like an arrow in his quiver. And an arrow, you know, it used to be a branch in a tree. It gets cut out of a tree. And when I got saved, I kind of asked Jesus to come into my tree with me. I, I was saved under this ask Jesus into your heart philosophy. I asked Jesus into my tree. The, the gospel thing is come out of your tree. Follow me. Come out of your world into my world. I want to cut you out into something else. And so many of us don't get saved that way. We, uh, as Peter says, we're still drinking from that old uh, life that we, uh, got, we got from our forefathers. We're still drinking from that old sap. And we say, well, I belong to Jesus, but really we're still there. And God says, I want to make you an arrow. And he wants to cut you out. That happened for me some years after I'd asked him in. I asked Jesus in my now divided heart, because I'm still in this tree, really. And he's saying, now follow me. He said to Abraham, come out to a place I will show you. When he started the game with Elijah, he said, now go, I'll meet with you there. I'm, I, that, that, that's where God's not faith that I can look after you in another world. Come out of the world you know into the world I'll show you. And that keeps on happening as you go through. Come out of this into something I'm going to show you. Elijah's told us, now go to Zarephath. What's there? A widow woman, I've told her. She get, he gets there. She doesn't look like she's been told anything. She's about to die. He said, she'll provide for you. And he has to trust God. He's been called into the unknown again and again, and we live by faith. And all the time we do that, our character is being formed as we trust God for the next step. And God's shaping us from what we know is trustworthy, apparently safe, into well, the unknown, where God is, where he's on the throne, where he's guiding, where he, his workmanship, these plans, these things he's, he's planned beforehand for us to walk in. He's drawing us into them. But it happens as we leave behind the predictable. We say, okay, look, cut me out of my tree. And he starts cutting off the twigs, cutting off the branches to make you into an arrow so that you can fly 
You say, do I have to leave, lose those leaves? Well, it depends whether you want to fly or not. Don't hear of many arrows hitting targets when got leaves attached. So there becomes your ambition, look, cut away everything you like. Cut away what you will. My first intention when I first come to Jesus is, please can I keep most of this? Yeah, I do want to follow you, but I don't want to lose anything. And gradually you get to know him. You say, oh Lord, cut it away. And you say, oh wow, I lost that. I lost my friends. lost my reputation. <laughs> lost this, lost that. Okay, just cut away, Lord, cut away. Why? I want to become an arrow. I want to hit a target. I want to touch the things you planned for me. Cut away, Lord. Just keep cutting away. And our identity changes. Same piece of wood. Same piece of wood. Used to be in a tree. Now you fly, you hit things. Same piece of wood, but you're shaped by his workmanship. He's cutting you away. He's cutting away things that you think, I long for, I like, that's part of me. I remember when that started growing. No, you don't need it. You don't need it. Come on. And then it says, I'm a polished arrow. I'm a polished arrow. And then it says this, I'm in his quiver. That's disappointing. I'm a polished arrow. Come on, let's go. Yeah, you can be in my quiver. I didn't get polished to be in a quiver. I want to be in a bow. I want to go. No, no, you're in my quiver. Wait patiently for the Lord. Part of the training. Part of the workmanship. For works he's prepared. There's a process that happens. God's working on our character. He works on our character. He's doing stuff in us. You see, we can see power without character. You look at Samson, it's power, but there's no, there's no character. You contrast David with Samson. The spirit was on David. Amazing. Took out Goliath, led armies into great victories, getting to know God all the way. Look at Samson, the power of God. It nowhere says about Samson, then a, then a devil empowered him. A false spirit. Nowhere says that. The spirit of God was on him. But he didn't get to know God. He didn't grow in character. We see that sometimes in the Christian world. There's such power. Where's the character? Well, it's not happening. And there comes a time when God says enough. But it doesn't say it wasn't the power of God. God wants us to grow in character. He wants a journey. Samson doesn't seem to be on a journey. He just turns up here, turns up there. Power, power, power. To no purpose, apparently. This is it. Power is no proof that all's well. It really isn't. Power, God's power is very exciting. We, love, we need charisma. How we need charisma. How are we going to break through in this modern secular world? Oh God, please give us more charisma. We need it. Well, how we need the character that goes with it. So the power is safe. It's safe. When Wendy and I first got married, we were given a washing machine. And it said on it, it's very old-fashioned. We go back a long way. You're supposed to grind it into the... Uh, it had to be riveted into the floor. And we thought, oh, I can't be bothered with that. Rivet it into the floor. So we turned it on, filled it, turned it on, and it chased us all around the kitchen. <laughs> power. Power's exciting. It's also scary. With character is what nails you into God's purpose. We need, his, we need him. We need to be able to take what he is teaching us 
in terms of character, God will work in our lives. He will sometimes send trials across our path. He's forming our character. Delays. You know, I'm a polished arrow awaiting my quiver. Polished arrows are not made for quivers. Yes, they are. When I'm ready. And the guy who owns the bow and the arrows, he guards that quiver. He doesn't throw it away. He guards it jealously. But when you're in it, it just looks like a dark tunnel. Is that light I see at the top? Yeah, God's got his hand upon us. And we go through trials, we go through difficulties. We need to understand the pressures. And you see it in virtually every Bible character, whether it be a David in a Dullam's cave. David, who'd killed Goliath? David, about whom they sang? Saul has slain his thousands. David is ten thousands. Wow, this guy's going. Here he goes. He's a young man swishing through the palace. The girls are singing. The 10,000, ooh, the 10,000 guy. And there's David saying, yeah, it was me, and I like the look of you too, dear. And, you know, he's really in trouble. He's flying high, and the girls are singing, and he's a happy boy. And God says, okay, I think it's, I think it's a Dullam's Cave time. He goes through a time of restraining and restriction. And it says for us in Hebrews, God deals with you as sons. God deals with your sons. And then it says, don't, don't shrug off. When God, when God chastens you, because he chastens every son that he receives. Every son he, he loves, he chastens. And they said, beware. It's, it's learning how to handle that. So it says, don't shrug it off. Don't be careless at the chastening of the Lord. That's what we read in Hebrews and uh, is it chapter 12 or 13, 12. It says, don't, don't, every, every son who's without discipline, if you're without discipline, then you're illegitimate. If you're saying, I don't know what you're talking about, what's discipline? No, I think if you're a believer, you know of times when you're being disciplined. If you're without discipline, you're an illegitimate child. It's for discipline that we endure. God's dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that his father doesn't discipline? He says he disciplines us for a short time, for our good. All discipline for the moment seems not joyful, but sorrowful. And then it says, now don't shrug it off. Don't say, oh, hallelujah anyway. I'm doing fine. No, take it seriously. The discipline of the Lord, it says, don't, don't discard it. Don't be careless. When you sense God's touching you, don't shrug it off. Then it says, and don't faint. Don't faint. It's like an uninstructed, uninstructed child. It says, you don't love me anymore. But don't faint. That can be the temptation when it's tough. You think, oh, it's not worth it. I can't manage it. No, the Bible says, look, I'm going to discipline you. Now, all discipline's for your good if you're trained by it. If you look through this passage, we don't have time to look at it carefully. It says if you're trained by it, it's possible to not be trained by it. When God's disciplining us, it's for our good. And we're not to shrug it off and we're not to faint. There are two opposite ways of responding. We just say, oh, it's nothing, I'm doing fine, it's not, tough. not hurting me, not bothering me. Or you just go under like a child. Oh, you don't love me. Don't faint. And then it says that we have to obtain grace. 
lest a root of bitterness grows up. If you don't obtain grace, when you're going through difficulty, then you get bitter. And God's, not, God's wanting character, not bitterness. Confidence in him. So we can have all these wrong responses, but it says, if we will strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather strengthened. It's almost like God sees us in our need. He sees something in our character that is somewhat lame. Maybe we're retaliatory. Maybe we're a bit of a gossip. Something that's in our character that, you know, we're a bit lame. And God's dealing with us like a son. Now he says, if you receive it well, you can, instead of being put out of joint completely, if you react, you miss it. But if you, if you are taught by the discipline, then you come out of it strengthened. You don't come short of the grace of God. No root of bitterness springing up, causing trouble. There will be times of character formation. Sometimes there'll be difficult seasons. But we're his workmanship. We're his work of art, his poetry. He's working on us. He's working through the seasons. I love the seasons. I love the spring. I love the autumn. Winter is beautiful. Summer's great. But seasons are beautiful. And God works with us through seasons. We learn things in the cold winter that we don't learn in the summer. We learn things in painful seasons. We learn often more in those times. God's working on us. We're his workmanship. He's training us. He's preparing us. He's getting our character shaped. Don't faint. Don't let roots of bitterness grow. Become the one that God wants you to be. Amazing that God's writing some poetry over you. You're his work of art. You're his workmanship created in Christ. In Christ, that's your location. For works, for works, he's prepared beforehand. It's amazing. It's been great to hear, even this evening and earlier in the day, new ideas, we're breaking into Langer, we're breaking into here, we're on the West Coast, we're starting here, we're starting in the city. Just think of it, God, works you prepared beforehand for me to walk in. You shape me, you shape the work, we're going to go into it. We're going to see something that God chose me for. He snatched me out of what I was when I was walking in all these terrible ways when it says in Ephesians 2 at the beginning, you're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power that works in the sons of disobedience, walking in your flesh, world, flesh and devil, all of it you were walking in. That's where I was walking. <laughs> that is where I was walking when God saved me. Now he's taken us out of that. Now he's got me works that he wants me to walk in. I love that word walk. Lots of our modern translations say live, but the Bible's word is walk. It's a biblical word. It goes right back into the Old Testament. Abraham, walk before me, step by step. Walk, walk this journey into works I've prepared for you. God's prepared them, and he's preparing you for them. Let's see God do wonderful things here. This is a, such a key nation. I believe God's got his hand on 
Africa, I believe it, South Africa particularly, I believe it so much. I was here back in 94, flew from here back, as it happens to the USA, on the night when things amazingly reversed. I saw headlines here in Cape Town, bloodbath feared. And I flew across and I arrived in the US, walked down the concourse of the airport and I saw all these pictures of black faces laughing and smiling from South Africa because there'd been that amazing reversal after prayer. And God moved and worked and did an incredible thing. I believe God wants to do something yet more wonderful in South Africa. Raise up. The key is the church. The key is the people of God. You can't legislate for godliness. The church has to do it. The people of God. God wants that for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we are your workmanship. Thank you so much, Lord. We're just amazed. Thank you so much for calling us, calling us out of our darkness. Lord, even, even knowing us before we were formed, calling us into your purposes. And Father, we, we, we thank you so much. You choose the things that are not. You don't call many mighty. You call the weak. You call those aware of their vulnerability. We're so grateful, Lord. We thank you so much for gifts, Lord, amazing gifts you give us that we know are other than ourselves. There, you, you give us gifts, Lord. Sometimes we suddenly know something. Sometimes we suddenly say things and we, we know, Lord, it's from you. Sometimes we lay hands on somebody and things happen and we thank you for the gifts of God. And we thank you. You are working on our characters. And help us, Father, to take all your training well with faith and help us to look for those works you've prepared beforehand for us. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Please bless each person, each family, each church represented here. Let us go from strength to strength for your great glory, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.